Welcome to episode two of Acquiring Scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo. And today we have a special guest, Chris Yates. He is a digital entrepreneur who has successfully started, grown, and sold several online businesses and has been an advisor on over $100 million in online business acquisition and exits. He runs a community and live event called Rodian Weekend for entrepreneurs acquiring, monetizing, and selling portfolio of online businesses. And he's also the owner of Centurica, a company that provides solutions such as due diligence, website assessment, and live verification to buyers of internet businesses. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be on. Appreciate you having me. Awesome, man. So I'm excited. I'm pumped to chat about a great couple of things that I have in this agenda for today. But why don't we go ahead and talk about what is it that you guys do at Rodeon and what are you focused on right now? Yeah, so Rodeon, what what it is, I started Rodeon originally because I found myself somewhat isolated running a portfolio of online businesses and wanted to connect with other people who thought about online business in a similar way that I did. So I started bringing people together and built a community out of that, basically through word of mouth and those kinds of things. And what Rodeon is today, it is a community of primarily digital business owners, as well as people who are looking to acquire digital businesses Typically, they are SaaS, content, e-commerce, and a little bit of productized service businesses. Anywhere in terms of sales, anywhere between mid-six figures and low eight figures, typically. And what we work really hard in the community to create is a culture of paying it forward and sharing experiences because often can be difficult to find like-minded people who do what we do. And and it really, there's a lot of value in sharing knowledge and experience with one another, as well as just having people to enjoy the ride of being an entrepreneur with. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually got a chance to join last year. And there's something pretty interesting that I noticed that I go to a lot of conference. And in this particular format that you have, you do have multiple events during the year, but there's also this live event that you have a limit on how many people can attend. What's the reason behind that? Yeah, so it was very small because I originally I started this in the space of people who are interested in buying and selling of online businesses. And at the time, this was back in like 2012, there weren't a ton of people who even knew about it, let alone were doing it actively. So originally, it started out almost by accident as an intimate event, probably like 40 or so people in that first event. And every year I've grown it just a little bit more. And what happened was people were really raving about the kind of peer-to-peer knowledge sharing and those kinds of things. And once you get to a certain scale, it actually makes it more difficult to have the opportunity to really deeply connect with people and share knowledge and and have some of those opportunities. And as I went along, I learned a little bit more. I was asking myself, why is Rhodium working? Like, what is it about smaller, more intimate events that's working well? And I came across something called Dunbar's number, which is a guy who studied primates and group sizes as a scientist. And he found out that for humans, there is a number. And for most people, it's around 150 people which is the limit that we as our brains can hold in terms of connections that we can maintain at any given time. So my thought was that if Rhodium started to grow beyond, you know, anything in that kind of low hundred range, that we would start to lose that opportunity to be able to kind of hold the connections and things like that in their brain. So I intentionally kept it smaller and it allows me to do things with the event that are just not possible with a thousand person sort of sort of 
conference, including much more tailor-made seating charts or different things like that, that just makes it unique and allows a lot more opportunity for people to connect and really build a community as opposed to feel kind of isolated in a 2,000-person event, right? Yeah. In fact, the feeling when I got walking to the event and like immediately I connected with, you know, really interesting people. And then next thing you know, I'm chatting with some of the people and it happens to be that they are the speakers. So I'm like, it's a very close community and I'm glad I'm looking for for the next couple of years. But uh, you also have some other events. So you got the main life event. There's some other masterminds. So tell us about that. Yeah. With full transparency, Rhodium for me is not the biggest moneymaker or anything like that. I do it because I love it. Like I really enjoy seeing entrepreneurs connect and things like that. The problem is that when you do a live event, often they're just an annual event, right? So you get to see each other once a year. And what I wanted to create was an opportunity for people to be able to connect more frequently than that, but maybe not have to travel to do it. So it started out with a Facebook group and eventually we started to do a regular monthly call and that kind of started to form a couple of mastermind groups. And and for those who aren't familiar with the concept of a mastermind, it's essentially a group of people working towards sort of a a common objective and leveraging each other's knowledge and experience and, and things like that to support one another in that process. I was originally created, I mean, I think the person who coined that term was Napoleon Hill in his book, Think and Grow Rich. So basically, the idea with Rhodium in terms of mastermind groups was to have an opportunity for people to connect throughout the year. And so we do, uh, for instance, a monthly Zoom call where we get together, share some of our wins, some of our challenges and opportunities, as well as uh, allow people who want it the opportunity to share like, hey, here's my here's my challenge that I'm having right now. Can you guys give me some feedback from your experience? And I found that structure of being able to hear Even just a sounding board is really valuable, but being able to hear how different people think about the problem that you're facing can really open up your mind to more opportunities and things like that. And I believe that there's no better way to connect with people than to ask for help and receive it or to have somebody else asking for help and you you be able to help them. That to me just forms a really great bond. So this gives a frequent opportunity for people within Rhodium to do that. Yeah, and there's four values. There's a constant improvement, confidentiality, speak for experience and paid forward. Those are the four values for the Rhodium community. When I saw that on the website, I was like, well, there's a lot of thought behind this. So I'm really curious to know why speak from experience Why is it that is so important for you? So what I was trying to create with those values that you just mentioned is a culture within Rhodium. Like (laughs) essentially, I don't have to work as hard if people kind of understand this is the way you Rhodium, right? Like I don't have to be the babysitter of the community. Like they they really can self-guide the way that interactions happen. But in order to do that properly, I have to lead from my own kind of example, as well as having people within the community who are who are following those guidelines so that people can understand this is what's normal within the community, right? And these values started to be created over time just organically from the community. And then at some point of, a couple of years ago, I actually formalized it into like these four statements that you just mentioned. And so speak from experience where that came from is I believe that today, like content is super abundant. And if you want to listen to, you know, a guru or somebody like that speak, you can just go listen to their podcast, right? But what I think is really scarce is being able to sit down with somebody and like kind of talk about your problems in your specific situation and hear from somebody who's actually done it, how they would have solved that problem or has done something similar, how they've solved that problem. But in order to have a conversation of that flavor, you have to be able to sit next to somebody who actually has experience under their belt so that they can speak from a point of 
not theory, like this is what you should do or prescription or, or this is what my buddy, you know, Joe Schmo across the street did. Like this is, this is how I did it. Right. And so when you start with that as the fundamental, there's other important pieces to this particular concept. One of them is how people communicate with one another. So I believe that when people, when somebody comes to, like, if I came to you, Gabe, and I'm like, Hey, here's what you have to do. Like you have to do this, this, and this immediately your brain starts to say, well, these are the reasons why I don't want to do that. It turns into this defensive mode, right? And let's imagine that there were five other people in this room with us right now. They were all listening and pretty soon they're going to tune out because everything I'm talking about is specific to you. It's a prescription to you. It's no longer relevant for them, right? So if you imagine that we're sitting around a, a table of six people and we're having this discussion, you mentioned you have a challenge. And instead of me saying, here's what you need to do, I start saying, well, I had a similar situation. Here's what it was. And you kind of talk about the past things that you experienced and how you solved it yourself. Now, I'm not creating a defensive mode because I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just sharing my own personal experiences, right? And then the other four people at the table also are benefiting from that experience share that you're sharing instead of it just being a prescription for you. So there are a lot of nuances to that particular value, but that's that's really what why I felt it was important to focus on that and, and make it part of the culture of the community. Yeah. And it's, I do want to mention that being in the podcast industry for four or five years, I did see a lot of those gurus and those experts that just because there is a podcast or there is a channel, it kind of gives them the opportunity to talk about things that they perhaps do not have experience. And I do see that the people that I actually met through Rodion, I got that feeling where, well, these people have done it. They have gone either through multiple acquisitions, buying or selling businesses. So it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. Now, for people that are, have not gone through that, that's the main reason why we're doing this podcast is you don't have to have like it's kind of the, the graduate from college that is wanting to get a job and all of the jobs are asking for three, four years of experience. Right. Right. So so it's part of these tools and the content that even Chris, if you go go check out on Google all the interviews that he has done, the reason why he goes and do that is sharing and paying it forward, I believe, which is the other value. So it's not keeping the secrets, which in many other different industries that doesn't happen too often. So I want to shift gears and talk about money hacks versus real business. So that's something that you discuss in another interview where we get excited when we read the four hour where we can do the side hustles, we can build online businesses, but you have make a transition. You used to be on the agency world 10, 12 years ago, and now you've been building your own portfolio. So what is it that you call a, a real business? And what is it that you're building right now that is a real business? Yeah. So what just to give context on, I think what you're talking about when I was mentioning money hacks versus a real business. So in the online space specifically, there are ways to make money utilizing what I call a hack, right? So something that, and what I mean by that is basically something that it's going to work for a while, but it's probably not going to be a long-term consistent thing. And I think about this in terms of opportunities like arbitrage as an example. So right now, an arbitrage example might be, I might be able to go buy really traf really cheap traffic from one, one website and then put ads on my website for a higher amount. And so I get the spread between how much I earn from the ads on my website versus how, how cheap I can buy the traffic from, right? So you're really, I mean, that that is a business in and of itself and it can be a very successful business if you treat it like that. But oftentimes people will, for instance, build a very simple website. It gets a, a couple of big keywords ranking and then they throw some ads or affiliate links up on the website. And then that kind of thing is just so susceptible to 
just being wiped out if those one or two keywords are no longer ranking, right? So that to me is more in the definition of a money hack. So things that are not sustainable, like maybe you're not adding as much value to the world from your actual product or service as as you would if you had something a little bit more established. So when I talk about something that's a, a quote unquote real business, my litmus test for that, one of them would be, can you profitably pay for traffic to this business? That's one. Do you, can you control the distribution of your product or service? That's another, right? So are you actually creating value in the world? And is it done in a way where you can build multiple sources of traffic to the business? Those kinds of things. You actually own your own customer. Those are the types of things that I would say are, are important when you're, when you're wanting to build a real online business specifically. Yep. So people talk a lot about passion and doing what you love. And I remember, you know, when we get to hang out at the event and seeing how you connect with people and how passionate are you about this. But I want to hear your thoughts in terms of the difference between being passionate about business versus having to be passionate about every single thing on, on your portfolio. So give you an example. If somebody's buying four or five websites, they are not necessarily passionate about those things or those services that are provided by the website. But what's your take on that? Is it do you have to be passionate about those websites? Or I know you're definitely passionate about Rodeo, and I have no doubt about that. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that. So a lot of it starts with what is your goal? Like, what are you trying to achieve? So for some people, money is a really big motivator for them. And actually that that they are passionate about money and building a big business, right? So the actual business itself, like you can be passionate about building a business, about marketing or digital marketing or customer service, whatever it is, like you can be really passionate about those topics. So the actual, the thing that you're selling maybe is less important as the passion that you have about making money or building the business, et cetera. So I'll give you an example. In my own portfolio early days, I bought a, a business that was a, basically a blog in the Dungeons and Dragons space. I personally, I think it sounds like a fun game, but I've never like been into it or never played it. I didn't really know anything about it, but I knew that I was passionate about like, this thing is under monetized and I know I can help make this thing have much better monetization than it's having now, right? So buying it, my passion was around what I could do with the monetization of this thing. And what I did was put in other people to do the content creation and writing who were passionate around the topic. I didn't have to be passionate. I just had to work with them and make sure that they had a platform or a business that they could do what they were passionate about, which is creating content around Dungeons and Dragons. And I basically would take care of the rest of it, if that makes sense. So, so that's, I'm, I'm not sure if that sort of exactly what the line you're going down, but that's one thought on like, how can you be passionate about something that you don't know a lot about or, or whatever, right? Like I, I would imagine for you, not to turn this around on you, but perhaps you were, you were really passionate about building the systems and processes around podcast production. Um, maybe you weren't as passionate about creating a podcast at the time or something like that. That would be another example just to throw something out there. And I don't know if that's true for you, but just to throw it as an example. Yeah, well, I will say right away in the podcast, because that's one of the things that people ask me a lot of questions since I saw the business and it's an industry that has been growing like crazy. But the reality, I was never passionate about the technical aspect of podcasting, right? And a lot of my competitors, they were, and that's why they were not able to scale because they got involved into running the business. So I never personally edit my own podcast or have done any podcasting before. 
So I thought that that was a big advantage, right? But now it's always been in my mind, do I go chase my passion right now and or I just buy profitable businesses that I'm going to be passionate about growing <laughs> and then, you know, build my portfolio. So I was just curious to hear your portfolio and what are kind of like some of the filters that you have before buying a site. Yeah, I'll touch on that in just a second. But what, first thing I want to mention on the passion piece, for me, I actually have created essentially three buckets for myself in when I look at the businesses that I work on. One is, is, is it something I'm excited and passionate about? Two is, can I make an impact on people's lives by doing it? And three is, does it meet my financial and kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And then four, I mean, this is a fourth bucket, but you know, how much is it going to scale, right? Like, can I, if I'm passionate about or interested in creating really big wealth, that's, that's its own bucket in and of itself. But with me, I have Rhodium, it really checks those first three. But given that I've intentionally, as we've talked about, I've intentionally kept it small and not tried to scale it really big. It's probably not going to be a real big wealth. Like I'm not going to become Warren Buffett just running an, an event once a year with 150 people, right? So what I've decided to do is to now have Rhodium, I have other businesses that I do that are more more scalable. And I've also started getting more into the investment side of it so that I'm able to kind of do those things. So one business does not have to fulfill all of the things that you're wanting to accomplish. You can utilize like one business to fulfill the, the passion piece or just to take care of your basic living expenses and things like that. Then you're, you're free if you have that taken care of like a lot of your needs as a human are taken care of, then you can play, right? Like you can make big bets. You can go into investing. You can do this business that maybe is more scalable, but you don't really know a lot about or aren't passionate about. So that's one way to think about it from the lens of like one person doesn't have to fulfill all of your desires and needs, right? But you know, that's why you have friends. That's why you have girlfriends. That's why you have spouses, et cetera, right? So anyway, and then your question in terms of, can you repeat your, your question? Yeah. So I was asking you about your portfolio in terms of your vision. Are you buying more productized service business kind of thing, e-commerce, content websites. What's your focus for the next at least three years? That's to be determined because my new iteration of what I'm working on. So I've back in, let's say 2009, 2010 was when I first started buying online businesses. After buying a whole bunch of them, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 different online businesses, I started getting to the point where I had developed this portfolio and it had become much more of a management problem than a creation and an acquisition problem. And I started to really kind of not enjoy just the turning of the wheels and the and those kinds of things with the business. Like I'm a natural um, starter and problem solver creator, and I wasn't doing well <laughs> in terms of like enjoyment when it got to more of like the manager operator role. And so I actually exited a bunch of my websites and started, and that's actually one of the reasons I like Rhodium is because I get to do basically a new event, a new business every year. But what I'm doing now with that in mind is like, I, I'm, I'm evolving now to a little bit more of like a capital allocator. So I have joined on as a, as a partner within a private, private equity company, and we take wealthy family money and invest it into online businesses. And we actually find operators or essentially CEOs to operate the businesses that we're investing into with that with those funds, right? So some of it's my money, some of it's our partner's money, and some of it, a chunk of it is the, the wealthy family's money, right? So what's cool about that is this is a whole new area for me to grow as an entrepreneur is learning how to properly capital allocate and be less of the person actually in the weeds doing the work and more of the person kind of helping and guiding and supporting the person who's doing that work. 
So where we're focused right now is a few different pieces, and, and a lot of it really depends on who the operator is. So our goal is to identify people who already have something figured out. They have experience. They have talent. All they need is basically more fuel for a fire that they already have burning. And that fuel can be in the form of capital, resources, knowledge, connections, et cetera, that they would get by being part of kind of our organization. So that's kind of the path that I'm going down. We have right now definitely content sites, but we are looking for content sites that can scale beyond just pure Google SEO and affiliate. So we're looking for things that can we can turn turn into maybe low cost, high margin physical products that we can leverage the traffic on there, right? Things that we can build an email list on and start to promote, for instance, membership programs or info products, those kinds of things. So we're looking for stuff that can go beyond just really simple like review websites to actually something that has more of a community, more of an engaged, multi-channel, multi-product sort of approach. So content websites in general, what I love about them is the, obviously the margins on businesses like that. I mean, your real costs are just content production, right? It's information. And there's a lot of ways you can monetize that information from affiliate to digital products, as I mentioned, you know, all of those kinds of things. The second thing we're focused on is actually we're doing a lot of ground up content sites right now. And the reason I like that and why I'm kind of bullish on that is we've we've got an environment where there, and, and I'm not sure how long this is going to last within this whole situation that's happening with coronavirus right now, but we, we were, we've been in a very much a seller's market. So we don't have enough quality businesses for sale, especially ones w- that would create a full-time income for people. And one of our operators within our organization has basically built, I think he's got a portfolio of about 50-ish content sites that he's built from scratch himself, right? So what we're doing is partnering with him to give him the capital to just keep launching a whole bunch more sites. And after a few years, those sites can be making a really healthy return and we can either turn around and sell those or we can take them to the next level in terms of monetization. So that's another bet we're making. In the future, we are looking at productized service businesses. I like them because just if you look at it from a portfolio perspective, the businesses that I've talked about so far, there is a reliance upon Google search traffic and other types of free traffic like Pinterest or other kinds of social media traffic. With productized service businesses, that's less correlated to what's happening with Google a lot of the time. So you can do advertising, you can do media buys, you can do affiliate, you know, there's a lot more opportunities of ways to monetize and ways to get traffic within those productized service businesses. And the margins are really good, assuming that you can get a good team that can fulfill on them. So that is something we're looking at in the future. We're just looking for the right operator to, to kind of partner with on that, who again, has a fuel already burning that they just need some more for more fire for so. Yeah. And, and one of the main things that I also want to achieve with this podcast is also showcasing the different players in the industry. So from the brokers to the marketplace to the advisors, and they're all very different and how they play out and how they work. So you guys with Centurica do some advising and website reviews and assessments, pretty helpful. And actually last week when we were doing our mastermind, I learned that you guys also offer some entry level kind of like quick review kind of things for less than a hundred bucks. And I don't know why I didn't notice that before, but I've been looking at different businesses. So that would be very helpful, but I'm definitely planning to use in some of those. Yeah. I want to just spend some more time in terms of the role and how critical that is because you have been involved in dozens of deals and hundreds of millions of dollars. You've probably seen a lot of different cases and 
for you to decide, okay, I'm going to work with these different players like private equities. Apparently, they've been dominating this acquisitions world, but not necessarily in the internet industry, which is where you can add a lot of value. But I'm curious to understand, is there a point that you decide, okay, I'm going to build my own fund, or you want to continue to use and provide value to different players as a connector? Because I can totally see that you are a connector, but what are your thoughts in there? Yeah, so on the Centurica front, just just to give context for folks, Centurica specifically provides essentially due diligence and advisory primarily for people who are buying online businesses anywhere between with the valuation anywhere between 50k and 50 million. We work with individual entrepreneurs, we work with businesses and we work with private equity firms, right? So we as you mentioned, we and and our specialty is actually digital businesses. So we've seen a lot just to give you an idea, we've done our process roughly about 500 times over the last few years on all different flavors of businesses, kind of multiple hundreds of millions, right, that we've got experience with. And the reason I'm excited about that is because this, these assets, these online businesses for people who are acquiring them are very risky if you don't, especially if you don't know what you're doing. So one of the things we can do to add value to this ecosystem of kind of this smaller private equity slash mergers and acquisitions world is to make it a little bit safer for buyers so that they know they go into deals with their eyes wide open. And um, you'd be amazed how many scams and really um, unsustainable businesses get put on the market out there for unsuspecting buyers. And unfortunately, that's something that happens. And, and our goal is to, to help prevent that. So I think in terms of the players that you mentioned, that's the role that we are really trying to play is to really have the back of the buyer out there and to make sure that they're going into deals with their their eyes wide open. And so to broaden that out to your question, I think I think you're asking like what's going on in the digital space right now. I can tell you that right now the main people buying are there are a lot of people coming out of the corporate world or out of offline businesses or real estate investing who are utilizing loans like bank loans backed by the SBA at least in the United States to buy businesses. So those are the people who are buying businesses typically in the 500k to about 5 million dollar range. Above that, then you start getting into kind of a fractured world. Like you may get some of those buyers, but you're also getting what are called fundless sponsors. So these are individuals who might be finding a deal and then putting together the investors after they find the deal, right? And then you have more of the private equity funds, like what you mentioned, which are the, the people who already have the funds available and they're going out and buying. Many of the traditional private equity firms haven't played in the online world, but the reality we have right now is that people who are used to, for instance, selling to retail businesses and those kinds of things in the e-commerce world or haven't ha- don't have a lot of exposure in the e-commerce, maybe they're a manufacturer or something like that. With Amazon, they just can't ignore it anymore. So I think the likelihood of those traditional companies coming in and buying more of these digitally focused businesses is going to go up, whether that's just like a bolt-on transaction or if it, if it becomes like a larger play. But one of the, like it just depends on the space. So SaaS, on the other hand, there is a lot of money out there trying to buy these these SaaS businesses that are established, and uh, some really really interesting stuff out there happening in terms of that. So so those are a few kind of points I think in, in terms of your question of what's happening within Centurica, what's happening within the broader space of who's buying, and some of those kinds of things. Yeah, so that's kind of I think what's working in the industry. What do you think is not working by now in the acquisitions for internet businesses? Not working, I would say, let me put it this way, is it's not that hard to buy a business. It's really hard to operate one, keep it stable, let alone grow it. So I think what's not working are people, the the actual people buying these businesses, realizing 
what it takes and very much underestimating the amount of effort and sophistication that it takes to actually do this at scale, let alone with one business, but when you when you layer on a bunch more. So a perfect example of this, there was a company, which I'm actually fine to name, it's called Income Store. And they took on a whole bunch of investor money in a Ponzi-like way, allegedly. And they tried to scale, basically. They tried to scale acquisitions really, really fast, but they did not have the operational pieces into the puzzle to actually buy sustainable businesses that were able to be operated successfully for a long period of time, right? So that was certainly a black eye, I think, within the industry is seeing that happen and, and seeing kind of the outcome, including potential jail time for those who are doing it. So that's one area where I would say, Operationally, we we are definitely in need of really sharp people who can operate these businesses so that those as more and more money from private equity comes in, that we that can be paired with people who can actually be successful with that money and actually not destroy wealth in the process. Yeah, and I would say that because of the nature of online businesses with everything like, well, again, the, the four hour world, we kind of model like, yeah, you just build systems and you delegate everything else. And then virtual assistant for almost nothing will do all the work, which is all a fantasy. But I mean, there are businesses that run that way, but the reality, like you're saying, at scale, that may not be the case. And even to manage those portfolio of websites, it's a whole different story. So even though that a business can be started and be built and there's value and there's money and profit in those businesses, if somebody's looking to buy 20 or 40 businesses, it's different from having one, let alone, you know, two or three or four or 40 businesses, right? Now, do you think that's also related to what happens before due diligence where people are saying, hey, and a prospectus, you see, yeah, the owner is saying that, yeah, I only work five hours a week. Right. Yeah. No, I generally would assume. Okay. So there's a couple of things to unpack in terms of a prospectus that claims a certain amount of time by the owner. So number one is that before a business gets sold, the owner is going to reduce their time on, let's just call it R&D related opportunities. So things that are new in the business that if they weren't going to sell it, they would probably be considering doing. That might be new marketing channels or, or new growth strategies or experimentation and things like that. So when you're not trying to actively grow your business and and go after new opportunities and things like that, that's really going to reduce your time needed to actually operate the business. So let's just take that as, you know, if if your intention is to buy and just operate, you're not going to probably succeed very well over a period of, let's say, five years if all you do is just the same thing that the current owner is doing. So I think it's not realistic to go into a business assuming that you're going to be able just to maintain it and expect the same returns that the current owner is getting. So that's one piece of the puzzle. The second piece is that owner has been in that business for typically at least a couple of years, in many cases longer. They've learned the process, they have the knowledge, et cetera. They're going to be way more efficient than somebody fresh coming in, trying to operate the same business. So I normally would say, uh, whatever they tell you, multiply it by somewhere between two and five times that amount of time to see what you actually would really do. And then the last piece is people underestimate what their actual time in the business is. Like if you actually sat down minute by minute and tracked your time, you would be surprised at how much time you waste on things like email responses and all sorts of things like that. So there are a lot of things that are required to kind of keep the business going that aren't often, you know, the the owners will typically underestimate what that reality is. So you bring those three things together, the, the amount of time you're gonna have to spend growing the business 
the lack of productivity that you're going to have in comparison to somebody who's been doing it for so long. And then the underestimation, that's really, the businesses pretty quickly become not as passive as what the, the current owner is claiming. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Do you mind sharing then when some of these larger firm investment firms or these entities that we mentioned earlier, uh, are there any metrics that you have come across where they're measuring either internal rate of return or expectation on growth rate? I know in the venture capital world, those are very defined. And if you go through a startup accelerator or you're raising capital for a small company that it's just getting started, you have some metrics that you can do projections and whatnot. But I'm curious to know, based on your experience, are there any existing metrics that you guys look at in defining what success looked like for an acquisition? Yeah, it's one of those things where it depends on the sophistication of the buyer. So if you asked about private equity, private equity, let's just, I'm sure you know the the metaphor of being in the, in the forest versus being above the forest and seeing the, the forest from the trees. So somebody who is in private equity, they like to be at a much higher level and look at the broad strategic uh, fit within what they're trying to accomplish. But at the end of the day, there's uh, two main things I believe that they're looking at. One is the yield. So how much cash on cash are they going to basically be getting if they invest on this? And the ways that they improve that are obviously things that they can do post-closing as well as deal structures where they create earnouts and various things that requires them to put less cash into the deal and share in some of the upside with the current operators. So that's one piece of it. And Right now, with interest rates basically being nothing, like, you know, like these online businesses actually look really attractive. Theoretically, a 3x multiple, or basically, if you buy a business of, of three times the earnings, that's like 33% a year in theory, right? Or whatever it is. And that sounds really, really attractive when you compare it to 0.1% that you would get in a bank account or something like that, right? So at the surface, that looks really, really attractive. But it also comes with a lot of risk of because these things can be very volatile, these online businesses, right? But I think a lot of what a lot of people are looking at in addition in the private equity world is what does the exit multiple look like versus the entry multiple. So for instance, they might be this might be a small piece in a larger play for them. So an example of that might be they already own a manufacturing business, it's a very traditional business. What they're trying to do is position that business for an eventual exit to somebody else, right? Another larger private equity firm, a fish that's bigger than them, right? So what they want to do is actually whatever they will acquire and bolt on to that acquisition makes the whole thing more valuable for whoever it is that they sell it on and sell it to in the future, right? So that might mean that they they buy an e-commerce business because it's rapidly growing and has a lot more scalability than a really established kind of slowly growing manufacturing company, right? But the two can work well together. That might be a piece of it. There are other things that I've seen. An example would be they buy it specifically because of the sales reps were getting a lot of the Amazon business and they were getting commissions on all of the Amazon business. So if they bought a business that that was the situation with and they remove that commission and they take over the actual sales channel of Amazon themselves, it creates a whole bunch of value in terms of extra cash flow and, and things like that in the business. So when you get into private equity, it becomes a lot more strategic and there's a lot more pieces at play. For most of the people who are the individuals who are using an SBA loan, they're looking at this as they're kind of buying their way out of corporate life, right? So what they're, what's important to them is, number one, can they pay the loan? And number two, can they live on the funds, right? 
So, so that's really more of a, a cash flow situation. How much can they pull out of the business every month to live the life that they want to live? So for those listening, this is just a small snapshot of what kind of value you get when you hang out with people like Chris and people at Rodeon. So, I mean, I get excited just hearing those stories. I remember at Rodeon, they were, were talking about not somebody at the event, but somebody that they knew that they used an SBA loan and the business ended up failing miserably and they still have to pay the SBA loan. So there is risk, even though it is a simple format, I think it's exciting. There's some influencers that I see now there, the Ryan Moran from capitalism.com and Roland Frasier, which I actually attended one of his sessions and he's phenomenal. He's been doing mergers and acquisitions for years, but they're not, they've now been pushing this whole, hey, you can buy businesses, you can sell businesses. So I know there's going to be more and more people, but it's also critical to understand that there's a lot of risks still involved. And again, I want to thank you, Chris, for, for this time. And before we wrap up, I wanted to spend some time chatting about deal structures. Empire Flippers, they post an annual report. You guys at Centurica also published an industry report, which I will link in the show notes for those of you listening. But I was chatting with FE International last week at the podcast, and we were chatting about earnouts and even how Empire Flippers, they have a whole section now for earnouts and how that's becoming more, more common. So do you mind sharing some of the thoughts in terms of that deal structure, what's working in there, and even with brokers or no brokers? Because I also think that that changes the game. Of course, a broker, and I actually asked that to FE, and I was amazed that they, they told me that, no, that's actually a good deal for the buyer and the seller. Maybe a good deal, especially while we're going through a crisis like the one that we're going right now. The question that I'm asking, it's your thoughts on deal structure, earnouts. What do you think it's working or not working? Okay, I learned something from a mentor and he always said, uh, well, actually, I, I kind of twisted around. So I'll give you my version of it. So I will buy any deal at any price as long as you let me name the terms. So w when you think about what that means is that price is kind of irrelevant, right? Because So I could tell you I'll pay you a million dollars for your business right now, Gabe, but uh, I'm going to pay you a, a penny a day for a million days, right? That doesn't actually sound very attractive, right? So so terms are really, really key. And, and I look at them from obviously two lenses. As a seller, what terms do you always want to get? Full cash at closing, right? So that's what you're always pushing for. And in order to really achieve that, if you're looking to sell your business, the ideal situation is to create a business that actually justifies a full cash offer at closing, right? What often happens is that, for instance, individual owners of these businesses are using their personal brand, as an example, to be an important part of the growth engine of the business. If you're doing that, that's not to say you can't sell the business. It just means that you're probably not going to get full cash at closing because you as an individual are so key to the future of that business. Remove you, it loses value. So the way that you utilize seller financing is and and earnouts and deal structures and things like that i look at it like a tool that you can use for the right situation in a situation like i just described where there's a personal brand involved it makes sense for that seller to share some of the risk to the buyer of what happens when you start to remove your personal brand from the marketing and the ads and things like that on that business I think that's fair for both people to share some of that risk, right? So picking the right tool for the right situation is important. Now, another common thing, we've talked about the SBA loans. So it actually limits what you can do. There are creative ways to get around it, but generally that means that if, you're using an, if a buyer is using an SBA loan, 
typically the bank will do the 80% and the, the buyer will do 10% and the seller would do 10%, something along those lines, right? So the actual structure and creative creativity you can get with that is much, much more small. So it's actually pretty attractive for a seller as long as the buyer is working with a good bank and, and there's confidence that they can actually make that deal happen and the business actually can qualify, right? So now if we talk about some of the things that are happening for instance, on Empire Flipper deals, that kind of six-figure range type deals and maybe some, some seven-figure deals where a buyer is coming in, maybe they have a certain amount of cash available, and maybe this business is just outside of the reach of what they can do to actually acquire it, right? So the way you can bridge that gap is to ask the seller to carry some of the balance that you can't pay up front, right? And that can be in the form of what you would expect a normal loan to be, right? It could be a two-year loan at a fixed rate and a fixed payment or or not, right? So that's what, when we talk about seller financing, that's typically just a structured, it's very clear, it's like a loan, right? When we talk about earnouts, what that means is you're basically tying the future performance of the business to how much the seller is gonna end up getting for that business. So an example of that might be, I will pay 50% upfront and then I will pay you 10% of gross sales for the business up to a certain price within a certain time frame. So you don't actually know the sale price of the business until either that price is reached or the time frame is reached. So if it doesn't go well for the the buyer, you could get less than you had anticipated. If it goes really well for the buyer and you as a as a seller, support them really well and help them grow it, you could actually get more than maybe what you were originally wanting to get for the business. So that's kind of the, the push pull of it. And the way I think about it is it, it allows buyers to get into businesses that they may not have otherwise been able to get into. It allows them to reduce some of their risk and gives them more confidence that the seller has enough. They're basically backing their business enough to put their money on the line in that deal, right? So that's really good from a buyer's perspective. From a seller's perspective, part of it is if you like if you just want an annuity, you just want a regular payment every month and you actually don't need a big deposit in your bank right now for tax planning reasons or whatever, you could it actually could be really beneficial for you to take a structured payout or something along those lines. So there's a lot of factors that come into play in terms of when it's the right tool for the job, but that's really what it is. It's, it's a tool, a really powerful tool for buyers to get a better return on their cash and a really powerful tool for sellers who may have some risky areas of their business, but they're willing to put their own money on the line to uh, share some of that risk with buyers. Yeah, and I think when I, when I went through the process myself, I know this is selling a business is extremely emotional, at least for me it was, and even buying a business is extremely emotional. It's kind of, I would say, even more emotional than buying a house or selling a house. But the reality is that there's a lot of education and a lot of learning. And when I went through my process, I did not want to do any earn out. I did not want to enroll any creative financing. I say I want cash and that's it. I ended up getting that deal and I'm pretty happy with it. But the reality is if I would have known more of these details, perhaps I would have been more open to find the right partner because it's more kind of like a partnership because it can also go wrong. And I think with companies like Centurica and their support. I would love to learn as well if you have any recommendations on what is the kind of support because there's the legal aspect, there's also the accounting aspect if you do an earn out deal or a creative financing or a structural payments deal. But in my case, which again, it was it was a deal where I wouldn't want to spend three, $5,000 with an advisor 
to come up with a structure, not knowing if the buyer will want to even do that. Or that's where I'm kind of curious to see who do you go to for that? Is it a lawyer, a law firm, uh, accountant, or somebody like Centurica? Yeah. So it depends, I think, on if you're if you're in the buyer seat or the seller seat. So in the example you're referencing right now, is there one seat or the other that you're referring to? Yeah, well, let's talk about the buyers. I think the buyers, just because, again, there's this now movement of people saying, hey, you can, like right now, literally next week, Roland is hosting uh, an event teaching people how to buy business for nothing, right? Like no down, kind of like what happened in the real estate industry years ago, that that whole movement, like buy real estate with no money down. That's, I think, what we're going to see a lot of in this day. So I'm curious to see the the practicality versus the theory. (laughs) Yes, for sure. And I'll tell you that it is it is possible. I found somebody who was starting a new business. They were tired of the business they had. They didn't want to go through the effort of trying to sell it. And they had enough trust in me that I could grow it. And they actually wanted basically just to give it to me for essentially nothing but to share some of the, the profits with them if if I did something with it, right? I didn't do that because I didn't have the time and the deal was too small. But those types of things can happen. It's certainly possible. I would say it's more the exception than the rule. Because if you think about a, a sell side, it's the next best alternative that you're always going to have there, right? So if you have two buyers that are coming after you, one wants to do a no money down deal, and the other one has 100% cash up front, like which one are you gonna gonna go with? But the cases where (laughs) uh, no money down typically happens is because there's some major problem with the business. So from a buyer perspective, you have to be really savvy with what you're, you're able to do with the business in order to make that happen. So that said, in terms of where buyers can go for kind of deal structure advice and stuff like that, my go-to would be to find people who have already done it before. Again, on the sort of circling back with the speak from experience thing, actually find entrepreneurs who have bought businesses that have used deal structures, talk to them about what worked well, what didn't work, things like that. I really think peer-to-peer kind of knowledge sharing is, is a great, great tool in this situation because there are just so many ways, like deal structuring is like, there is no right way to do it. Like there's like you just come up with whatever works for everybody, right? And, you know, in terms of Centurica, we we are definitely involved pre-offer, but we are, we have the most value in due diligence. So that comes after all of these things have been figured out when we do the, the due diligence work. But when we do work with people who, we've had people who engage us to help them during their search process to refine what business they should go after, what's the right fit for them. And then when they find one, how much should I pay for it? And at what terms, then we can kind of advise them and, and tell them like, hey, here's what we normally see in these situations. You know, we, we've seen these types of structures work well for, for this particular situation. So I would say that would be one. If you are a much more experienced buyer, the investment banks kind of get involved in some of those kinds of things. And that's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. So I would say a company like Centurica, there, there certainly are buy side representatives that can work with you on that. People who act like a buy side broker, typically you're going to pay them either an engagement or you're going to pay a commission on a deal. So those are a couple of things off the top of my head. Most, I would say most attorneys will, they will want you to kind of figure out the deal and then their job will be to poke all the holes they can possibly into it. And actually probably in in many cases, the deal won't actually happen if you listen to them, right? Because there's always something that can go wrong. So it it definitely takes tempering it, right? And then I I think from a tax perspective, 
that's definitely going to depend on your individual situation, what's going on in, in your world, what your assets are, where you live, those kinds of things. And I, I would say that would be a really important person to have on your team so that when you do have these deal structures that you're making sure that you're doing it in a tax advantage way on a pretty big deal, like the wrong tax structure for a buyer or a seller can mean large chunks of money. So so I think it's very important to have both attorneys and uh, lawyers, and then preferably somebody who takes more of the operator mindset, who's been down there a little bit more. And that's where like Centurica, I think fits in there and other entrepreneurs who've already kind of done deal structures would be the best fit for that piece. Absolutely. So I'll make sure I will be adding the links for Centurica, Rodian Weekend, and any other social profile for finding Chris. Chris, thank you so much again. Any last thought about anything that you would like people to know about Rodion or the acquisition industry right now? The only thing that I would say the in terms of Rodium or acquisitions is that the whole purpose I created it originally was to get around other people who are doing interesting things, who have experience and who are willing, they're just good people and want to share. So if you have not built a support system around you of people who are walking down the same path that you're on right now, I would say that's it's a little bit cliche now because I think you hear it a lot, but you really are the average of the people you surround yourself with. So I would take a hard look at who are the five to 10 people around you that are walking down the path that you want to go down, maybe who are a few steps ahead of you that you can learn from. And I I would really encourage you to reach out to those people, ask for their help. And here's the most important key piece at the end is to provide a feedback loop after you've implemented the guidance and advice that they've shared so that they can hear what you did with that. From a mentorship perspective, which is in a way what I'm talking about here, that's actually the biggest reward that you can give a potential mentor is to to ask for their advice, get their advice, take action on it, and then tell them the results, what happened after you did that. So I would suggest if everybody listening to go find five people that are maybe a couple steps ahead of them or who are walking alongside them or maybe even a couple steps behind and build that community and, and support around yourself. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 